Well, let me ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles in the New Testament, believe it or not. We've been a long time in the Old Testament. Turn, if you would, to the little book of Philippians, chapter 3. Hard to believe tomorrow is the first day of a new year. In reality, it's just another ordinary day, but it's been marked off for us in our calendaring system as a, as a, a time to look back and reflect on the year that has just passed and a time to look ahead and contemplate the possibilities and the opportunities of the year coming up. In fact, the, the very name of the first month of the year, January, comes from the ancient god Janus, J-A-N-U-S. And if you, you can look up um, drawings and uh, old coins with uh, that god's image on it, he has two faces, one looking forward and one looking back. And uh, he was the, the god of new beginnings in their culture. And basically, he looked back to evaluate his past and looked ahead to the new year coming. And that's essentially where January comes from and where this whole new year and time of reflecting and planning and all of that comes from. So new year provides for us just kind of a natural opportunity to, to take inventory of our lives. And I think it's, you know, I, I don't always bring new year sermons. In fact, I rarely do. Maybe Three or four years ago was the last one. Um, but I think it is good sometimes for us to, even though, you know, in teaching, we don't want to be locked into the calendar and be forced to bring a message on a certain day. I'd rather listen to what the Lord is asking us to speak on. But this year, just really, um, I was prompted again and again to have us pause as a church, as families and as individuals, and take a look at some incredible wisdom that we find in this little chapter of Philippians 3. I think one of the most important chapters in the New Testament for practical instructions for living the Christian life. In fact, I would would put Philippians chapter 3 up against the book of Romans in importance. Um, So this morning I want us to pause and just take some time to examine our own lives and ask the best that we can whether or not God was truly honored in how we lived in 2023. That's the main question. It's not about anything that happened in our life. It's not about whether we got promoted or lost a job. It's not about whether we made more money, whether we made more friends. None of that is what really matters. The question for us today, the question for me today As I look back over this year, was God truly pleased with the life I lived in 2023? And what, if anything, needs to change in 2024? And I want to take a few minutes for us to do just that today by looking into God's Word and allowing it to be kind of a a map to guide our steps into this year ahead. Philippians Chapter 3, Paul is writing to the little church in Philippi. It could look just like this. I don't think they had these chairs back then. I don't think they had the screens back then. But 
you know, same, same kind of concept. So Paul is now writing this letter back to a church that he started years earlier. And by the way, can I just drop this little um, important detail in? As you read this letter, it's a letter of great joy. But let's not forget that Paul was in chains in Rome when he wrote this letter. What kind of letter would you write? What kind of letter would I write if I was in chains in prison waiting to be beheaded? It's remarkable that any of this came off of his pen. And only through the power of the Holy Spirit did it do so. So I want to pick up in the middle of this chapter on purpose, in the middle of a thought, so that we can, it'll have more emphasis in just a second when we go back and look at the early verses. Let's start in verse 12. Verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. He says, Not that I have already attained all this, or have already been made perfect, that word means whole or complete, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, brothers and sisters, it means, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Um, I think we all are very familiar with New Year's resolutions. They're, they're the things that you swear you're going to do over the next 12 months that then get totally abandoned before January has ended. I think one of the um, most common symbols of New Year's resolutions are all the treadmills for sale uh, starting about March or April. Now, look, it's, it's great to make New Year's resolutions if they work for you, if they're a benefit to you. But from the perspective of a, our Christian walk, I want to just give us some things this morning to caution us about living this kind of Christian life with sort of fits and starts of, I promise God I'm going to do this. And then before we know it, that promise is like the old treadmill that's now become a clothes rack. That promise is long gone and forgotten. <clears throat> Someone once described New Year's resolutions as a few days of frantic exuberance followed by a year of chronic inertia. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, but, you know, that's not how any of us want to live our Christian life. We've been called to a life of steady, constant faithfulness. And, and hearing that sounds like a lot to bite off. It, you know, wow, Phil, I'm like struggling to make it through the week. And you're telling us we've been called to a lifetime of steady faithfulness to God, a lifetime? Well, listen, I jotted this down this week to maybe break this down into some simple steps that will help us get to that mark when the time comes. And here it is. A lifetime of faithfulness is made up of daily steps of obedience in the right direction. Now, that's about as simple as I can word it. A lifetime of obedience 
A lifetime of faithfulness, rather, is made up of daily steps of obedience in the right direction. And I look at that and go, well, I can do that. I can make the decision right now, today, to obey God in this moment. I can take a step in the right direction. And when I've taken that step, I can do that again. I can take another step in the right direction. And in time, each of those steps of obedience in the right direction will add up to a lifetime of faithfulness for God. Christ hasn't called us to make erratic promises to to do better. That's not the Christian life. Because when when we do that, when we you know when we start the day and say, oh God, yesterday, what was I thinking? What was I doing, God? I promise I'm gonna do better. When when we begin down that path, it's a path that leads to frustration and disappointment and discouragement in the Christian life. Because I want to tell you folks, you will never be able to do better for God. You will never be able to in yourself. We simply cannot live up to God's standard. And all our promises, like New Year's resolutions, to do so are going to leave us frustrated and defeated. Instead of that, the the Christian life, we must remember, can only be lived by the power that comes from God himself. We sing that song from, from the inside out. And that's exactly what the Christian life must be from the inside out. Um, Paul sums this up beautifully in the previous chapter in verse 13. Philippians 2.13, he said, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. It's God who gives you the will to live for him, and it's God who gives you the ability to carry it out, to do it. What an extraordinary thing. And that's the great danger, I think, of teaching a rules-based Christianity. It creates little toy soldiers that march neatly in a row, but they've never been transformed on the inside. It's a life of external behavior. It's one of the dangers of teaching little children things like, now you be a good boy, you be a good girl, because that's what Jesus wants. Is it really, though? And so what we're teaching our children is um, to conform to external rules and behavior without ever getting to their heart. Christian life must be lived from a changed heart that then affects our external actions and behaviors and choices. So as we step into another year, I'm encouraged to tell you, and I hope you'll take this as, as good news, that there's something far better than making frantic attempts to keep a longer list of religious rules this year than you did last year. There's something much better than that. Instead, I hope we can learn what it means to allow God to work in us, both to will, to desire him, and to do, to carry out his good pleasure. For God to do that through us. 
The verses we read uh, in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, only really come to life when you see what Paul said right before that. So let's go back to verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul gives a rather sharp warning here. It's not something that, um, you know, I don't know, this is not a verse that a pastor would preach from as his main topic, I don't think. Uh, it's, it's a little unsettling to read these words from a man of God. But Paul said, Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. He said to the church, beware of those dogs. And he wasn't talking about the four-legged kind with fleas. He was talking about the two-legged kind that stand behind pulpits. Beware of those dogs. And he's using such strong language because of the seriousness of the matter. He's warning the Philippian church about people who were teaching that you couldn't be saved unless you kept a long list of external religious requirements from the old law. And that is what Paul bases this whole chapter on. The problem there that these people were going around teaching these new believers, well, you're not really saved unless you follow all the external rules of the old religious law. Paul says they're very dangerous people. You know, someone might read that and go, well, that's, that's not very nice for the Apostle Paul to call people dogs. Listen, it's an interesting study. Uh, well, it's interesting for me. Um, it's probably boring for everybody else, but I went through all of Paul's letters one time and made notes of every time he called somebody out. He was a bold fella because he loved the church. See, when you, when you have a um, rattlesnake in your house, you take action. You don't go, well, it'll probably be okay. I don't want to offend the snake. He has a right to live. Oh, he's in the baby's crib now. Oh, well, it's probably all right. No, you take action. You take strong, severe action to protect your family. This is all Paul is doing throughout his whole ministry. He warns people, beware of that guy, that coppersmith. Beware of that guy. He did me much harm. Watch out for him. This person in the church over here who's living in sin have nothing to do with him. It doesn't fit into our neat little churchy package today very well. But this is what Paul says, beware of those dogs. Now, he rarely uses language that strong. Dogs in those days were not uh, pets at home. They were, you know, dirty, filthy animals. That's what people saw them to be. So this correlation that Paul is making is very clear to these people. <clears throat> people who are bringing all these dumping all these religious rules upon your back, it's a very dangerous thing. It's no small matter. In contrast to that, Paul says in the next verse, in verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Christian life is not a matter of putting confidence in your credentials or your accomplishments. In fact, out of all the writers of the New Testament, if, if anyone had the right to point to his resume as a means of achieving righteousness before God, 
it would have been Paul. Because let me tell you, he had an impressive resume. And so now in his God-given brilliance as an author, he now begins to lead the readers into a little bit of a a trap here to get their attention and make a point. Verse 4, he says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And you go, man, that's a pretty arrogant guy. No, not at all. Not at all. He's really setting the folks up here to listen to what he's saying so that he can make his next point. If anyone else has reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, confidence in all the things they've done and achieved, I have more than anybody. He's saying, listen, if there was any way possible to achieve a right standing before God by doing good things, I would be at the front of that line. And then, in verses 5 and 6, He goes on to explain why he just said that. He actually lists for us his past accomplishments. And let me tell you, every Jew alive who read this list would have been green with envy. Every Jew alive at that time would have loved to have had this on their resume. Here's what he said in verses 5 and 6. Some of this doesn't make sense to us. I'll break it down in just a moment. He said... I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, let me, I sat down and I sort of translated this into maybe modern English for us, because some of these things just don't make sense. They don't carry any weight with us. They sound weird, in fact. So here's what he's saying. He starts out by saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he's saying, I was born into a devoutly religious family who followed all the rules to a T. Jews were required to do this to their their newborn sons on the eighth day. Not the seventh, not the ninth, the eighth day. Paul says, check that one off the list. He says, I'm of the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm a natural-born citizen of a country with a strong cultural and national identity. I was born into the people of Israel. I didn't transfer in. I didn't convert in. I have this pulsing through my blood. Another mark on the resume. Then he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's saying, I come from a highly esteemed family line of distinction and prominence. The tribe of Benjamin, wow, what an honor that was. He then goes on and says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying, I follow a a pure, authentic way of life that is true to our cultural and religious roots. He's saying, I don't mess around here and there. Man, I I follow this religious stuff to the letter. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he says something bizarre um, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Well, he's talking about the religious law. And what he's saying is, listen, folks, I have studied. In fact, I studied under one of the greatest men alive in his day, Gamaliel, he says, I have studied, I have, uh, I, I've achieved, um, you know, in our terms, multiple doctorates. 
I've got all of the plaques and certificates hanging on my wall. He says, I have achieved the highest level of education and expertise possible in the law. No one can get higher than what I've done. And then he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. What a strange statement. What does that mean? Well, for a Jew, um, a mark of honor for them was, was persecuting the church, putting down the church that Jesus had started. True Jews hated the church. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, I saw a clip not long ago with all this stuff going on in Israel. I saw uh, an Orthodox Jew being interviewed saying, we're still looking for the Messiah to come. I said, buddy, you're 2,000 years late. He's already come. See, they're still looking. Jesus, they spit. No, we don't want anything to do with him. And Paul was saying, as for zeal in my unsaved life, I didn't just hate Christians. I persecuted the church. And what he's saying is I've shown unflinching devotion and fervor in defending my religion. And then finally he says, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. It's like ask anybody kind of thing. Ask around. And he's saying I have a flawless reputation and unblemished record in my moral and ethical conduct. And he's telling the Philippian church, listen, I possess every credential there is to possess. I possess all the things that should get me accepted by God, comma. But then he says, now he's got them. He's got the reader like, wow, this, this guy, he's, he's the top of the top. He says, I possess it all. But then he says, and do you want to know how much it's all worth? Verse 7. But whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I really want you to hear these words. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul says, everything I achieved that was so valuable to me in my economy, turns out it was worthless in God's economy. Imagine going to Best Buy with a stack of Monopoly money. Now, I haven't been in Best Buy in five or six years, I guess, but I'm assuming they still have that massive wall of TVs over on the right. And um, I remember that because years and years ago, one of Nick's little friends, when he was young, came over to our house and we were hanging out and later we sat in the den and we're watching something on TV, and his friend said, why is your TV so blurry? And I said, it's not blurry. He goes, yeah, it is blurry. I said, what's wrong with you? It's not blurry. Months went by, and I went to Best Buy one day, 
And I was drawn like the siren song to the TV wall. And this was when they had just switched to flat screens. We had the old one. And I stood there looking at this, and I went, how about that? Our TV is blurry. <laughs> the kid was right. I owe him an apology. Um, so you walk into Best Buy with a, with a stack of Monopoly money, and you pick out one of those, whatever they make, 98-inch, 64K televisions. I don't know what they have now. And you wheel it up to the cash register, and you start counting out the Monopoly money. And you get furious that they refuse to accept it. How ridiculous. See, Monopoly money only has value in the game of Monopoly. It has no value in any other realm. It's worthless. And that's how it will be for anyone who thinks they can stand before God one day and proudly show him all the righteousness they've tried to accumulate on their own. It's going to be a sad day when they discover that their righteousness, however valuable it may be to them, their righteousness has absolutely no value in God's economy. Does that make sense? It has no value. The righteousness you and I must have to get into heaven is not a righteousness that you have gained. It's a righteousness that you have been given. That deserved a much bigger amen. That tore me up when I put that down. The righteousness we must have in order to get into heaven is not a righteousness that you have gained. It's a righteousness that you have been given. It's a gift amen. from Christ. It's not a righteousness that you have achieved it's a righteousness that has been achieved for you. How blessed are we? Paul wrote the same warning to the believers in Rome. Some of them were, you know, kind of counting on their own righteousness. And he set them straight in Romans 3, verse 20. He said this, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Like, how clear is that? No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by doing a long list of religious things. No one. You know, some churches send their people on an endless, lifelong path of keeping religious rules. And those dear people spend their lives trying to live up to that only to reach the end and discover that none of those external efforts have made them right with God. What a tragedy. If you ever, we have some here right now, we have others who are not here today, if you've ever talked to someone who has truly been born again out of Roman Catholicism, you can see the relief on their face when they share their story. It's like, man, you're seriously telling me I don't have to jump through all those hoops for the rest of my life to earn a place in heaven? No, you don't. You just have to believe and receive the salvation that has been provided for you through Christ. Receive it. 
No one will ever be declared righteous in God's sight unless they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. Now, works are important. The Bible says faith without works is dead, but we don't work for our salvation. We work because of our salvation. We work out our salvation. Paul says, I used to do all that stuff. Now, I mean, he's really done an amazing job of bringing us into this third chapter here. I used to do all that stuff. But listen, now here's where I really want to focus in for our remaining time here. Um, I'm, I've got two hours left. That's it. <laughs> Y'all are really quiet today. Just want to make sure you're here. I, man, this right now gets so good. If we don't get something out of this, you are dead. Okay? I'm just telling you that right now. I didn't call you a dog. I said you're dead. Okay? I'll leave the dog to Paul. Paul says, look, folks. Look at my resume. I used to do all that stuff, thinking that it was going to make me right with God. And he says, but here's all I want to do now. Look at verse 10. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Man, when Paul wrote this, he had already been in ministry for 25 or so years. He knew Christ probably better than anybody. Here's this seasoned Christian veteran who has withstood mockings and cursings and beatings for the Christ he loved. He wrote half the books in the New Testament. And he is saying, I still need to know him more. Do we have that hunger? Or do we just hunger for the latest episode in our show? Do we just hunger for the boat that our neighbor has in his yard? Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But do you hear the heartbeat of this man? You know what I've found? It's the most seasoned Christ followers who are the ones who desire him most. I sat with my father, this was about 10 years ago, in his office, and he said to me, he had his Bible open, he was sharing some things, and he said, you know, Philip, it has been my job for 60 years to study this book every day of my life, for 60 years, and he said, and I'm not even close to finishing it. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not, I've I've got this down, I'm pretty good to go. It's waking up every day, knowing that you've been bought at an incredible price, that God set his love on you when you were unlovable, that he pursued you, he saved you from an empty life, he saved you from an eternity in hell. And yet so often we put him on a shelf. We say, no, I'm... I know a lot. I'll listen to another sermon next week. I'll put enough gas in my tank to get me through till the next one. Paul. Paul says, I used to do all that stuff to earn righteousness. 
He says, it's all worthless. Now, let me tell you what I want to do. I want to know Christ. The word know there is not an intellectual understanding. It is an intimate relationship. I want to know him like that. Please forgive me if I can put it in these terms. I'm not being irreverent. It's like a kiss on the mouth. Paul says, I want to be that close to Christ. I want to know him. I want to know him. This phrase, this verse, changed my life many years ago. Changed my life. I could show you exactly where I was. I was just, I wasn't reading this verse. I was just reading through Philippians 3. But when I read these words, I fell under such conviction that I couldn't read another word. And the Holy Spirit prompted me and I said, Phil, you've grown up being taught the Bible. You know the Bible. You can debate people. But is it really your heart's desire to know Christ? And I had to say, no, it's not. I'm coasting. But let me tell you, when that did happen in my life, when Philippians 3.10 did become my mission in life, I've never been the same. I've never been the same. Oh, I have ups and downs in the Christian life like we all do. Ask my wife. But let me tell you, I have never once since that day wrestled with the silly, stupid, petty Christian things that I used to hang on to all before. It just went away. I said, this is my mission now. I don't care what color the chairs are in the church. I don't care which side the piano is on. And all that stupid church nonsense that people spend their lives focused on. I want to know Christ. That became my mission. Now, I will say, just reading about the Apostle Paul, you know, one could easily think, oh, we'll, we'll never catch up with this guy. He's miles ahead of us. There's no point even trying. Thankfully, Paul immediately adds these words in verses 12 and 13. We read these a minute ago, and now they, they really are going to make sense. He says, not that I have already attained all this, all this desire that I want to, I want to know Christ and um, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He went on in verse 10. He said, not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect or complete. He goes on in verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. He's making it clear to these believers that he hasn't arrived. He doesn't have it all together. And we should find great encouragement in this. The Apostle Paul says, hey, pull up a chair. You and me, we're on the same level. And you go, like, me? With you? Yeah. We're all in the slop, fighting this life together, trying to make it to the finish line and honor Christ with our lives. He says, Christ pursued me, and as a result, I want to spend my life pursuing him. Look at verse 12 again. This wording is a little tricky, but I think it's worth getting hold of. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to do what, Paul? To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What does he mean, Christ took hold of him? 
Well, we know the story. We don't have time to pursue it. But years earlier, when he was going about his old way of life, Christ intersected his path on the road to Damascus. God's blinding light knocked him to the ground. He was saved. And in that moment, Christ laid hold of him. And he was never the same again. Christ reached out and laid hold of Paul. Can I just ask you, has Christ ever laid hold of you? I'm not asking you if you're a religious person. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if you try to be kind and generous to those in need. I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking, was there ever a time when Christ intersected your path and caused you to know that you were lost without him and you were saved in that moment and your life has never been the same since? Have you ever had that moment? That's what happened to Paul. He said, Christ laid hold of me, he saved me, and now watch this. It's my mission in life to know the reason he saved me and to lay hold of that that he saved me for, to lay hold of the work that he has for me to do. Paul says, I was saved for a reason, and it's very clear. Ananias was sent to say to him, you know, you are my chosen messenger to take uh, my message to the, uh, what did it say, to, to the Gentiles and to kings and to Israel. <clears throat> Paul says, this is the mission Christ assigned to me when I was saved. He laid hold of me, he gave me this mission, and now I want to lay hold of that mission and carry it out. You want to know the greatest goal you can have for the new year? It's to say, I want to know Christ like never before, and I want to truly lay hold of his mission for my life. I can think of nothing better. You go, what do you mean his mission for my life? Phil, are you talking about selling everything I own and moving to Bangladesh to be a missionary? Nope, not at all. It's much simpler and much more complicated than that. <clears throat> God has a mission for you right where you are. You're a school teacher. You're an accountant. You're an artist, a musician, a mechanic, a nurse, a salesman, a business owner, a mom. Christ has a mission for you there. Have you ever considered that he wants you to carry his light to the corner of the world where he has placed you, wherever that is. Have you ever taken five minutes out of your schedule to pause and say, Lord, would you please help me lay hold of the mission that you saved me for? It's a powerful thing. Saying, I want to know Christ like never before, and I want to lay hold of his mission for my life, it's the greatest thing that you as an individual could ever say. It's the greatest thing that we as a church could ever do because everything we need to do for Christ flows from that. But Paul says, be warned, that pursuit is not going to come easy. It's not for the faint of heart. It's going to require discipline and persistence. Look again quickly at 
verses 12 to 14. I mean, we could spend weeks in these verses and keep drawing truth. I want you to listen to the action words he uses here. Now, he's talking about Christ has done his part for us. Now the ball's in our court. Are we going to pick it up and do what Christ has called us to do? It's going to take discipline. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When he says, I press on, that Greek phrase there means persisting in pursuit even to the point of persecution. I press on. Persisting in the pursuit of God, even to the point of persecution. Paul is emphasizing the need for unwavering dedication and relentless determination in our spiritual journey. Secondly, he says, one thing I do. Do you hear the single-minded focus with which Paul is conducting his life? It means refusing to get distracted by lesser pursuits. We've not been called to wander aimlessly through the Christian life. We've been called to have a single-minded focus on what Christ has called us to do. And then he says, oh boy, this is a big one. I'm wrapping this up. He says, forgetting those things which are behind. We're on the brink of a new year. He talked about looking back, making changes for the year to come. Paul says, There were a lot of things I had to forget in my past. Now, this is where people really struggle. I've seen this again and again. Because they say, Phil, I can't forget my past. No, you can't. You can't. Did you know it is impossible for human beings to intentionally forget anything? You can't do it. You randomly forget stuff all the time. Thankfully, this does not mean we are to forget our past. Listen to this. It means we are to choose to lay it down and leave it behind. There's a huge difference. We are to choose to lay our past down and leave it behind. Man, you would not believe the wrecked lives that I have encountered again and again and again by people who have not dealt with their past. It's deadly, man. But you know what? I know people, some of them sitting right here in this room right now, who've had the most horrific past you could ever imagine. And yet today, they're the most beautiful, joyful, Christ-like, vibrant, happy people you will ever meet. Why? Because at some point, they chose to stop being a victim to their past. They stopped using it as a calling card. Every time they meet somebody, oh, you just don't understand how I... Really, you've been hurt bad, have you? Take a number, pal. We all have. I get so weary of people who spend their life clobbering other people over the head and making everybody around them miserable because they had a bad past. 
Christ has called you to more, saint. He's called you to more. Have you spent this year wallowing in the failures of your past or coasting on the successes of your past? Paul had plenty of those too, and they're both wrong. Man, take Paul's advice, would you? Today, we're on the brink of a new year. Take this time to say, oh God, I don't want to hang on to this stuff from my past anymore. Please, God, help me choose to lay it down and to move on. I jotted this down. I wanted to put it on a slide to maybe help us remember it. Listen, we are all shaped by our past, but we don't have to be defined by it. We don't have to be. Stop playing the victim. Your life will change forever when you do that. Forever. Fourthly, he said, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. This phrase in the Greek is a picture of an athlete straining every muscle, stretching himself forward to be the first to break the tape. But notice the direction is forward. It's not enough to leave your past behind. You've got to move forward to what Christ has ahead for you. And then finally, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Notice here, Paul isn't running in any direction he feels like. He's running toward the goal. Also, Paul isn't running for nothing. He says, there's a prize that awaits us all, and it surpasses every earthly reward you could ever gain. So fix your eyes on that goal and press on straight towards it. Hey, believer, can I ask you, do you know where the goal is? You go, I'm heaven? Do you know where the goal is for your life? Because as someone once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. I think that was good old Zig Ziglar. Do you know where you're going? Well, I got saved 30 years ago, so I'm good. Are you really? Is that what you're going to give back to Christ in this new year? Resting on your salvation from 30 years ago? Shame on us. Christ deserves more. So let me ask you as I close, what did your spiritual journey look like in 2023? Were you able to say, I'm living for one thing, to know Christ? And I'm pressing on toward the goal to win the prize. Does that define 2023 for you? Man, what would God do through a church full of believers who set that as their desire, as their one ambition for 2024? What would God do? And so I wonder as we start this new year together, who among us would be willing to say with Paul, listen, I readily admit that I'm not there yet. But it's my aim, it's my desire 
to know Christ like I've never known him before, and I'm going to put the past behind me, which, as I said, means not wallowing in your failures and not coasting on your successes. And I'm committing to doing this one thing, to stay focused on Christ and press on toward the goal to win the prize. Let me tell you, 2024 can look very different for you than 2023 did. Is that what you want for your life? It's what I want. Can I just tell you, um, I hope this doesn't come out wrong because I'm very grateful for Christ in my life. I'm very grateful for all the progress, for all the things that he has done, for the things he's freed me of, for the things he helps me with. But I am never content in my Christian life. I am never satisfied with where I am. I want more. I want to know him more. I want to be used by him more. I want to yield myself to him more. I want to learn more. I want to go to my grave saying, give me just five more minutes. Just five more minutes to learn one more thing about him. Oh, folks, I'm telling you, the things God could do through your life and through this church, if we stopped long enough to make this our commitment for 2024 and beyond. And so as our music team comes now, I invite you to do just that. We're going to have a moment to pause. And again, I remind you, please, this is not a time to go get coffee or gather your belongings. This is a truly sacred time where God is working in people's hearts. We don't want to interfere with that. So I'm just asking you this morning, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and stand. Let me ask our music team to come and just begin to play. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We don't always do this because, um, well, I'll explain it some other time. don't have time now, but um, I would like to extend an invitation to you this morning, and I'd like to speak to our men of the church first, our men. <clears throat> you know, as Christian men, we have in so many ways abdicated our responsibility and our calling as leaders in the family, in the church, in the community. And so I'm speaking to the men of LifePoint right now, First of all, if you've never been saved, please call upon Christ right now to save you. But men, if you're saved, I want to give you an opportunity to step out at the beginning of this new year to take a stand. You know, it's like we, ugh, we make this so hard. We make this so stinking unnecessarily complicated. You know, everybody... I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just saying this is what you hear. You know, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes because we don't want anybody to see us making a decision for Christ. What? No, don't bow your head. Don't close your eyes. Men, I'm asking you right now. We're not going to wait. If you would boldly say, I'm stepping out to declare my commitment for Christ in 2024, I'm inviting you to come first to the front. Stand, kneel, do whatever you want to do. Come to the front and just spend some time with God 
and make that commitment to him. Ladies, I would like to invite you to do the same thing. Families, children, you come as God leads. There's something about stepping out and making a commitment. I don't know what it is. There's something about it, though. It cements the decision in our heart like almost nothing else can do. You just tell him whatever's on your heart right now. Just just share with him your desire. The life that you want to live for him. Just tell him. Father, you see your church here gathered together coming before you in this moment that will be gone shortly and gone forever but Lord in this moment in time on the brink of a new year you see your church coming before you laying down their lives afresh committing themselves to you afresh Asking for help to choose to lay down things in their past that have been keeping them bound. And desiring to strain forward toward the goal with one thing in mind, and that is to know Christ. Father, you've said if your people would call upon you, you would honor that. And you would do great things. And so, Father, I ask you to be true to your word. Lord, you see your church here on their knees before you. And I pray as we step into this new year tomorrow, God, would you begin a new work in each heart, begin a new work in this church, begin a new work in this community and in this country. And start with these people right here. Start with us. Search us, Lord. Set us free from anything we need to be set free from. Fill our hearts with a fresh, clear, single-minded vision for what it looks like to live for you this coming year. God, we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot do this by being trying to be better people. We, we rely upon your power working through us. And we step out now by faith into this new year doing just that. Father, honor this time for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. 
Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. See you.